missing. You may be seated. Amen. Good singing indeed this evening. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter number one. I might say as well, do be continually in prayer for Brother Dan Jett. He is, um, am I on? I think I'm on. I might be on. I feel like I'm on. I've got thumbs up, I'm on. All right. Pray for Brother Dan Jett. He is um, recovering from his cancer surgery uh, and is, uh, is recovering, but recovering slowly, and they're still trying to figure out or get the final answers, I guess is the best way to say it, on uh, some of the cancer numbers. And so do be continually in prayer for he and Tammy. And then to add insult to injury, their HVAC system went out this week, and so he's laid up at home and having to get that fixed. And so uh, just be in prayer for them. I know it's not an enjoyable season anyway, um, but uh, they've asked for prayer on that. So I sent out a questionnaire on the church app, and this is kind of a trial balloon for the things I'd like to do in some, in some ways this year. How many on the messaging app, on the, on the church website going that way, or on your church app, how many saw the questions? Great, I'm going to email them from now on. <laughs> Five of you. Uh, it was right there ahead of where Miss Kathy puts the bulletin, but uh, we're not driving you to the app, but the app is a great tool for communication and a great tool to enhance learning, but in theory, I thought that that was the case, but this was the test, so here were the questions. Go ahead. You can't see them, can you? I can't see them, but you could if you had your computer or your app out. You could have seen it, right? But here were the questions for this week. How many of you that did look at the questions, how many of you tried to answer them in lieu or in anticipation? It's the same five. All right, I know who my studious ones are. I know who I will be emailing and texting for banter on these subjects. Uh, what were the questions? Anybody that looked them up or anybody that has literally the most eagle eye of eagle eye that can read those, what are the questions? Well, the question first was this. From Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, I asked, God reveals himself in righteousness and in wrath. We learned that in verses 16 and 17 and in verse 18. The question is, why does he reveal himself in wrath according to verses 18 and 19? Well, what are some reasons for it? Josh is back there reading it, and Gretchen is impressed with his eagle eyes. Audrey's trying not to laugh. That's what happens with those beginnings. All right? Okay. All right. Why does he reveal himself in wrath? We have unrighteousness and ungodliness. We'll read all these and we'll study them, but I want to send these questions out because I want, I'd like, I sent them out yesterday for you to be thinking on these things, right? We're coming to the Bible. We can't just come without thinking. That's why those are some of the ways in which he manifested against. But what is the reason? Verse 19, or excuse me, at the end of verse 18, maybe if I put my glasses on, I can see it better. The Bible says this, who hold the truth in what? Okay, well, we're going to talk about that. Why does God have wrath towards us? It's because what he's revealed to us about his very nature, what we read in verses 16 and 17, we take it and we suppress it. Stop and think about your life this week. All of the Bible truths that you know you should do and the Bible truths that you know that you didn't do. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that God's wrath is going to be poured out upon you and a lightning bolt is going to strike you, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying we can understand this verse that that's essentially how it plays out. And it's how it did play out when sin first began in this world. All right, the second question that I put there was this. What do you believe God is using as a reference point in verses 20 and 21? Well done, Sharon. What did you say again? His creation. The reference point for verses 20 and 21 are creation itself. The reference point that God takes us all the way back to in this chapter. And again, I'm not even preaching yet. I'm just trying to go through the questions so that when I preach through them, it makes more sense. God references all the way back through Paul in his writing to the day or the moments of creation and then the revelation of creation as it was given to us. He says, Therefore the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that we, human beings, are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain or empty in their thinking, in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I always have encouraged you to read in sentences. And so what I'm giving to you here is sentences to study. All right, the third question as we begin this evening, and I'll do a better job next week for those that aren't able to log on. I'll bring a bigger blow up of the questions. I'll put them up there for you so we can rehearse them that way. But in verses 22 and 23, I asked you to think of how evolution and humanism fit into these descriptions that Paul gives in verses 22 and 23. Here's what Paul says. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. I used to read that when I was a kid. They were creepy things, but creeping things. Think of that. Every time the James Webb telescope brings back new images of the deeper recesses of the universe, evolutionists cringe because everything speaks to a young universe. And they keep saying, oh man, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we have our cosmology wrong. And the answer is professing yourself wise, you became fools. In the mind of God, they're already fools because they've rejected him. All right, the fourth question or fourth thought that I put in there. Some of you, I noticed, have opened your app. It is there in your app. You can find it right there in your app. There's an app for that. It says, the fo- I put follow the progression of verses 24 through 32. And I'm not going to read all of that tonight because I'm going to preach through it here in just a minute. And notice how people and culture itself become corrupted. And if you would, that's what we'll look at tonight. I want you to be mindful of that. It is really a progression of corruption. It's the process of how mankind as a race was corrupted. Well, let's read verses 18 and 19. Again, I'll pray, and then we'll jump into the preaching in proper this evening. The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. Father, help us tonight. As we come now and look at the problem of sin. Paul gave us the subject last week, and that is the gospel, the good news. And this week we come to seeing what the problem is. 
You can't have a solution. You can't have good news without knowing first what the bad news is. We're going to see this week and then next week in chapter 2 that sin has a universal problem and it has an individual problem. I pray that you'll help us this week to see the totality of sin that Paul lays out for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul, having established last week in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the principal subject of the gospel, now introduces us in chapter 1 to the problem of sin at the end of Romans 1 and throughout Romans 2. For salvation to be salvation, it must save us from something. I've long argued when I teach through Romans individually with people, Romans is an airtight argument as to what we get in Christ, in the good news, in the gospel, in salvation. For Paul to write an airtight argument, he has to first lay out what he's arguing against. After introducing the subject in the first two chapters, Paul then goes about saying, this is what sin looks like. Now, he's going to do it universally here in chapter 1, and we'll get to chapter 2 next week when we see that it's, in, or it's universal in 1 and individual in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he talks about our conscience, and he talks about religion. The two things that individuals hold on to, well, my conscience would tell me if I'm bad. It does. Well, my religion would have told me if I'm bad. It has. The problem is you trust in the mechanisms of those things and not the manifestation of those things, the things that they revealed to you. And that was true of the Jews and it was true of the individuals who were trusting their own conscience in chapter 2. But here in chapter 1, he deals with a universal problem for us. For something to be good news, we must be aware of the bad news. Sin, according to Paul, is universal and individual. Tonight, we come to this first concept of the universal problem and the presence of sin in our life. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, he's told us, for the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Sin, however, reveals God's wrath. When Adam sinned in the garden, he was afraid and ashamed of his nakedness, the Bible tells us. I often tell parents of young children... Pastor, when do you think that they know that they know they need to get saved? When is that real time? And I always will say to a parent, not to just any person, but to a parent, has your child moved from the stage of wanting to take showers and baths and not be ashamed running around buck naked? That is the telltale sign that their conscience is starting to say to them, this isn't right, I shouldn't be seen this way. And they're right. What is that telling you? There's a conscience that's awakening within them, and that is a very good time, mom and dad, to start having earnest conversations with them about sin and what sin does and why sin's wrong and how God remedied sin. But the point is, Adam sinned, and when he sinned, his first notice of that sin was, I'm naked, and this is not good. They were ashamed. But Paul has told us in verses 16 and 17 He is not ashamed of who he is in Christ. With this transition, let's look then at the problem of sin this evening as Paul lays it out in verses 18 through 32. We'll examine God's wrath revealed against sin, and it begins first in our outline with God's displeasure. 
In verses 18 through 25, we read of a God who is displeased. His wrath is being poured out. He is not happy. The word wrath is not here a vengeful explosion, as sometimes we often think wrath to be. But rather, the word wrath that is used here in this passage is a state of mind of one who is angry or has been angered and is now in opposition towards another. So in other words, it's not an explosive tirade that God falls into, but God effectively says, my wrath is now set against you. And there's only one solution to that that Paul's going to bring to us. But right now, mankind, when you sin, Paul says, my wrath is set against you. It is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. God has not exploded upon wicked man. By the way, as Christians, isn't that how we usually want him to do it? I mean, have you seen what they were doing at that library? I wish God would just lightning bolt them. No, his wrath is already being revealed against them. We're not wiser than God, far from it. God in his wrath has already established that their condemnation is coming. The only response that we should have is, I pray they get saved, and I pray and I will work tirelessly that they can't do that kind of wickedness anymore. But I'm not to call down lightning upon my enemy. God hasn't called down lightning upon them yet. He's long-suffering. So the word wrath here is not an explosion against them. It is when Adam sinned in the beginning, his wrath was revealed. Adam died, we're told. Spiritually, instantly, physically over time. But in both facets, Adam died. Romans 5 and verse 8 becomes even more cherished knowing what this word wrath means here. Because the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus. But God commendeth his love toward us, Romans 5, 8 tells us. In that while we were yet enemies, sinners, in that wrath, Christ died for us. Enemies to the holy nature of God, Christ redeems us from that state. Paul says that God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. Those are attitudes and actions that make up our sinful life. The focus of God's displeasure, however, first comes, letter A, over our rejection of Him. The latter half of verse 18 begins to examine or expose the state of rejection, the constant state of rejection that we live in. The rejection is found in that phrase, who hold the truth. In unrighteousness. The phrase hold the truth means that we intentionally suppress what we know is true. I can tell you many times as a child, we were reminiscing about this last night when my dad was over for his birthday dinner. There was many times as a child where my dad would say to me, Kyle, what part of that didn't you understand? And the answer is, I understood all of it. I just went ahead and disobeyed anyway. I suppress the truth in my mind. And that's what God is saying. Mankind is very aware that there's a God. All of us have a hole shaped within our soul that longs to know a God who is not within us, who is above us and beyond us. We long to be like him. Why? Because we know the truth, but we just suppress it. God is truth and the objective truth of God they take And disregard, he says here. God made manifest in them the truth. 
Their minds, their hearts, their conscience all spoke to a creator who made them. From the moment of Adam's sin until today, every human being has within them an understanding that they are wrong before God. Well, I don't believe I am. Well, you just haven't been introduced to yourself yet. As soon as you stop and really consider who you are, you realize, I'm a jerk. I'm a sinner. And some of you really saintly ladies in here are looking at me like, Pastor, do you think that about me? I think that about everybody, especially me, though. Because I only know what goes on between these two ears. I don't know what goes on between yours. But I know this, that we are all fallen. And every man, every woman, every boy and every girl knows and has had revealed to them what the truth is that you're a sinner. Their conscience yearns for a relationship, yearns for meaning because our race lost that relationship and that purpose in the, in the garden. The displeasure of God comes first over our rejection of what he's revealed to us, over, our, over a rejection of who he is. But secondly, it comes over our response to him. In verses 20 and 21, the Bible says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain, or that word vain means empty and useless in their imaginations or in their process of thinking. This passage, that part of that verse, is a direct link back to the pre-flood world in Genesis chapter 6 when the flood was coming and beginning. The thoughts of their imaginations were evil continually. They were useless to God because they were rejecting God. This is a direct connection back to that time. And he says, And their foolish heart was darkened. Open, excuse me, the key phrase here is when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. This is not willful rejection. This is a willful response to God yearning to know us. They knew Him. They just didn't want Him. God is not pleased when his creation decides to ignore his obvious purpose, his obvious power. And as he says here, the Godhead, Godhead, his obvious person. Let me ask you a question before we jump into that thought about his purpose, power, and person. What are some of the invisible things of this world that make God clearly known? What are some invisible things of this world that make God clearly known? I mean, the Bible says it, so it has to be true. Do you know any of them? Wind? That's a good one. Patterns in mathematics? Sinful nature? We have gone from the physical universe to the theoretical universe to the spiritual universe. That's wonderful. That's All right, go ahead. The existence of love. And some of you are thinking, what? You teenagers, you'll get there someday. Yeah, a a sense of justice. Great. It's not just these four people that know. You can see what are some of the invisible things that clearly speak to God. 
grace and mercy. The natural laws. That's the one I have written down here, Chris. The constants of science, right? Trust the science. The constants of science, right? Newton is sitting under the tree and an apple hits him on the head. Do you know that apple would hit him on the head every single time he sat under that tree? The law of gravity is 100%. I mean, you go further out into space and it has less pull on you, but if you go out into outer space, can I suggest to you without propulsion, you eventually will still be sucked back down into Earth. It will be a fiery demise as you enter the atmosphere because that's another law of thermodynamics, and that is a friction. As we enter the Earth's atmosphere, we'll burn up. All of these invisible things we know. Well, who made those invisible things? I mean, you know, there was a big bang. (laughs) And there was a big mathematical problem that came out of it. Well, no, there has to be... uh, What's the great... uh, One one of the great creation scientists, he said, for a big bang, there has to be a big banger. (laughs) There has to be somebody that started it all, right? I put here, one of the things is order, and Edward said a, a good one. From order, we have logic, reasoning, and rational minds. Did you know that in evolution, there is no cause for a rational mind? That is an invisible thing of God. You have a a theory that starts in chaos. It always ends in chaos. Well, how did it get order? Well, it doesn't have order if it's a theory that starts in chaos and randomness and chance, tomorrow gravity may not work, and it may flip, and it may just expel us from the earth. Do you want that to happen? None of us want that to happen, right? I mean, for like five seconds we'd like it, and then we'd be in the air going, uh, I hope it doesn't reverse again. We all know these invisible things of God. Uh, Jason Lyle writes a book, The Ultimate Proof, wonderful book. If you're a reader, I encourage it. If you're a parent, I would encourage your child to read it. Uh, When my kids get into their senior year of high school, it's going to be required reading for them to graduate uh, from the Fannin Christian Academy. And so for them to, Jason Lyle writes in it, essentially, it, it boils down the whole book to this. Everything in the evolutionary worldview has to steal everything in the Christian worldview to make the argument in the evolutionary worldview. It's a great book. And the ultimate proof that he drives down to is logic. The fact that we can make deductive and inductive reasoning and arguments from that, the fact that we have logic, that's an invisible thing that no one can explain, but we use it every day to explain everything. Logic is at its core the essence of why we are God's special creation. We can share his mind because he was very orderly and very logical in the way he made this world. And my point is simply this. Our response to that God is this. When they knew him, they glorified him not as God. Well, what's the big deal about him? And that's Cain. Hey, Cain, where's your brother? (laughs) I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper in Genesis 4? Well, yeah, you are. That's how I structured this world. You should care for others. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus would say. And God speaking to him says his blood is crying out from the ground. You killed him. And Cain, by the way, doesn't care about staying in God's presence or staying in God's blessing. All you find Cain say is, this is too hard for me. Somebody else is going to come kill me. That's all Cain argues back to God. He knew God... But he didn't glorify him as God. I don't care about you. Just protect me. 
Cain is the epitome of all of mankind in our living out our sin nature and who we are. The displeasure of God here in Romans chapter 1 finally comes from, let us see, our refusal. It's rejection, it's our improper response to Him, and it finishes in our refusal of Him. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and purposefully changed the glory of God, uh, glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Open rejection leads to a hostile response, which leads to a pattern of refusal to obey. That is what God is saying here. This is the progress down. As God is displeased with us in our sinfulness, this is how we end up responding to Him. By the way, even Christians can respond to God this way. Now, what He's painting here is not a picture of believers falling or backsliding again. What He's doing is painting a picture of what the universal problem all of mankind as a race has. We had a God who made us, and then we departed. That departure was a displeasure to God, and it was a progression down. There was a rejection, an improper response, and then an open refusal to who He was. The the refusal is so egregious that mankind, Paul says, will literally pick anything but God to worship. I remember I used to work with a person that was a Jain Hindu, and she would have Ganesh sitting in her window. It's one of their gods, the elephant god with the multiple arms. And as it sat in the window, by the way, at that office, I was not allowed to put my Bible on my desk, but she could put Ganesh in her window. But uh, the Ganesh idol was in her window, and I would ask her what that god was. She didn't even know. But it was a weird-looking thing, kind of a creepy thing, you might say. And when I started seeing the thousands of other gods that the Hindus worship, they just get creepier. It's just proof that man will try to supplant anything for God. It tells us there's a longing for Him, but they will also use anything to supplant Him. So don't be surprised if your career becomes your God, or your finances become your God, or if your relationships become your God. Because mankind has been making all kinds of creatures or creature comforts their gods for a long time. Our refusal is an offense to God. God did not originally hate us. He loves us. God has never expressed hate towards us, but mankind has expressed open hatred and hostility towards Him. The refusal was formed in conceit, Professing themselves wise, they became fools. Think of all the intellectuals who refused to acknowledge a God. How many of the Sam Harris's, Stephen Hawkins, Richard Dawkins must there be in this world? Literally anyone who can cogently cobble together an argument with swelling words and even more swelling pride seems to have a platform of genius status in our present day. What none of them will tell you is that they are merely angry people who do not know any more about the universe or God than you do. But, I mean, they're they're really smart. I mean, they got double doctorates and can write about other dimensions. They have no other knowledge about God than you do. You have everything you need to know about the Creator 
right here. By the way, any of those people that I mentioned, uh, one of them's dead, one of them's on the way out, and the other one probably close to dying himself, all of them at some point have had confessed, Stephen Hawking's notoriously, confessed that he can't explain the universe. After telling us for his whole life that he could explain the universe, he can't explain the universe, he said at his deathbed. He said, all I can tell you is there's a lot of reasoning and logic to it. I confess there must have been a designer. And off he goes. After leading billions of people down a pathway of a lie, he finishes his life by saying, I really think there's too much structure to say the lie I told you is real. No shame. By the way, God's wrath, I, I feel bad for him, God's wrath is revealed against him. If he was a God rejecter in this life, God's wrath awaited him eternally as soon as he stepped out of it. And so we come to the universal problem of sin. It brings God's displeasure, and I must hasten along. This is my problem. The guys that sit in my office, we get an hour and a half. You all get 35 minutes. I've actually, I, I, it, too much, it's too important to pray together, and so that we'll always do it. But I've got to get more in. I've got to find some extra minutes somehow, all right? The second aspect here is it brings mankind's decline. When we start in verse number 24, we see the decline of man. Evolution says there's what? There's the ascent of man. What you read here is the descent of man. <laughs> How we've gone down from our perfection. Paul gives us a transitional word, wherefore. Whenever you see a wherefore in the Bible, the old saying is, see what it is, therefore. Good, you've learned well through the years here. God is displeased, so he allows our natural decline to occur. Far too often man's problems are blamed on God or even still on the devil himself. But man's problems are his problems, our problems alone. The reality is we were and are the author of our own dead, dying, and decaying condition. That's what he tells us beginning in verse 24. Why? Well, our decline starts with us dishonoring God. There, there seems to be a pattern that follows the displeasure with the dishonor here. Or the decline, I should say, here. The word dishonor in verse 24 means to abuse. They dishonor themselves. The decline of man begins with the allowing of all of the filth of this world to overwhelm and infiltrate our thinking process. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed, that word change there could be convert or exchanged, the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who himself, that creator, is blessed forever. It's settled. Amen. When we take the good gift of our human existence and forsake the one who gave it and abuse the gift of that life that was given to us, we are at the zenith of dishonor at that very moment. A parent who has ever been dishonored by a child that they nurtured and truly cared for understands this verse. I did everything for you, and you did all this to yourself? Pride, arrogance, selfishness, hatred, and all the rest become predominant thought patterns rather than love, grace, kindness, and the goodness of God. God's truth 
is in the good things of the Bible, yet mankind's first act in autonomy was a jealously fueled murder of a brother by the other brother. It was through the lust of their own hearts that the line of Cain lived. Truthfully, so too the line of Seth, except for the line that led to Noah. Whatever they longed for, they pursued. Whatever they wanted, they did. Does that sound like your life sometimes and mine? I hope as Christians we wouldn't follow that thinking pattern. They wanted to worship a God made in their image, gods that would assuage their lusts. Mankind is still in the business of internally dishonoring God's rightful position. We still find that our race changes the truth, the reality of God, into a lie. Those who in their heart want nothing to do with God exchange what is real and true for what they make up to be true and real in their own lives. Honor is a matter of the heart, which leads, letter B, our decline to the point of openly defying God. Verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. First he gave them to uncleanness. That is an inward manifestation or inward process of thinking. God here in verse 26 gives them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their own lusts one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly. And receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was appropriate or meet. One of God's displeasures was that mankind wasn't thankful in verse 21. Thankful for what? thankful for all of the good gifts he gave them. Here in verse 25, he said, or verse 26, excuse me, he says that he gives them over to vile affections, vile passions. Those vile passions will decline to the point of disgracing themselves in the usefulness of their body as they seek to defy their creator. God's design is for a man and a woman to marry and to enjoy the fruits of sexual relations within the bounds of marriage. Every sexual sin is a defiance to God's design. Pornography, premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, and now even in our day, the uncouth behavior of a transvestite. These are not normal. Yet it seems it's only the final two that I mentioned on the list that cause Christians to blush today. Well, I mean, Pastor, what are you going to do about adultery? I mean, what are you going to do? And the answer is not do it. The argument most often used by the homosexual or the transvestite is, God created me this way. You know, in a sense, that's true. God created you with certain desires, but it's your sin that made you this way. Those passions are to properly be expressed within God's original and intended design of marriage. Without an honor and respect of God, then normal desires will become aberrant. These sins are the most obvious sign of the decline of man. I want to do what I want to do and nobody's going to tell me it's wrong. In America, these sins are nearly ubiquitous in our society. The pornographic industry does $12 billion a year in America. Adultery ruins well over 50% of all marriages. Premarital sex is so common that those of us who believe in abstinence are mocked openly as being absurd to think kids can wait. And they should. 
homosexual and transvestites are considered mainstream heroes today. That is, until they ruin a beer brand. Our race is a disgrace in what we think is normal, as our natural man perpetually defies the living God. Be sure God is not mocked. Openly defying Him brings a revelation of His wrath upon individuals, but also upon cultures and countries. Remember, Paul is writing these words to believers living in an amoral Roman world. It was a cesspool of grossness, we might say. By the way, for future consideration, you ought to think on what it means that they receive in themselves the recompense of their reward. The teenagers are in here, so I'll not delve into all of the transmission of diseases. But simply to say, when the Bible says something is true, it's always true. They have still never cured HIV. Why? Because it's a transmitted disease in an inappropriate relationship. I must restrain myself tonight. Maybe this was a better Sunday morning message. I don't know. Um, Let's keep going here. (laughs) Verse 28. The Bible says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, not appropriate, not right, not natural. Skip down to verse 32. It says this, after giving us a list of wanton sinfulness, and I hope none of you is ever found on that list because that is the depth and the depravity. It is the totality, that list, of what sinful man comes to because of the universal problem of sin. But he says this in verse 32, who, knowing the judgment of God or the decree of God, what God has discerned to happen to them, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but they have pleasure in them or others that do them. They do not like to retain God in their thinking. And so letter C, it is they are in the process of deleting God. First, they begin with just dishonoring him. Then they openly defy him, and then they just go to the step of deleting him altogether. I don't care what he thinks. I know the judgment of God, but who is he? He's never struck me down. I've never received the recompense of mine. I'm good to go. So they just delete God altogether from their life. That is the depravity. That is the end step of universal sin. It's where mankind falls to. We might hear someone like that today say, why do we have to talk about God at all? He's not real. They don't even want to think about him. Those who would delete God from their life are given over to a reprobate mind, Paul writes. That does not mean to say that God gives them a reprobate mind. Be very careful when you read that. God does not implant in them that reprobate nature. God doesn't know sin. No, what it says here is that God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Their mind is already reprobate because of sin. It is free then from thinking like God altogether. That's what it means to be reprobate here. Devoid of any divine thinking process. 
And so, by the way, as a Christian, good luck having a conversation with him. It doesn't mean we shouldn't witness. It doesn't mean we shouldn't love. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But good luck having a conversation with them because they've already chosen the path of deleting God. They're already living in a mind that has removed God altogether from their thinking. Why should they listen to you? Why would they listen to you? The list of wanton sins that is given to us in verses 29 through 31 is pretty complete. The progress is what I'd like to note. When mankind rejected, responded to dissent, and refused God, then God gave them up, gave them up, and ultimately, the Bible says, gives them over to a way of thinking that is devoid of any of His way of thinking. With that deletion comes consequences. The result of a reprobate mind produces a myriad of sinful patterns that you find in verses 29 through 31. So I would tell the Christian this and only this to learn from those verses. If you're doing those and you claim to be a Christian, watch out. That's all I can tell you. Watch out. That is a serious list. And God has the Apostle Paul listed here so that we understand it is the End of the line of what sin does to us. It culminates in a stunning and yet simple truth that we read in verse 32. They know the judgment of God, they just don't care about it. In fact, so much so they take pleasure in all of those other wicked people. Deleting God is the universal problem of sin, we might say. So in closing tonight... The evolutionists and the humanists want to tell us that mankind is increasingly getting better. God in Romans 1 says that just isn't so. From the moment of sin, our race universally has been in a downward spiral in our spiritual, emotional, and yes, I would even argue our physical states. There are countless thousands of mutations and viruses that are going to get every one of us eventually. Well, that wasn't the way it was in the garden. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself the honest question? And everybody that's read the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis, you have to ask yourself this question. How did they live 969 years? Man, they had great doctors. Did they? Well, they must have been on the Mediterranean diet. Were they? And the answer is, The physical consequences of sin had not set into their body. Oh, I get it today. Medical science can keep us going for a long, long, sometimes too long of a time. We don't hold a candle to Methuselah. Even in our physical state, we're declining. Nothing about our race is in the ascent. It is always in the descent. Make no mistake, the race of man is ingenious. We are created in the image and likeness of God, after all. According to Genesis 11, God says this, there's nothing beyond the mental and physical capabilities of our race. God actually said that in Genesis 11. Nothing will be restrained from them. That means all of the evil, wicked we can imagine, but I also believe it means every kind of technological accomplishment of mankind. And God said, that's not my design on a fallen race. I think it is on a redeemed race someday, but we'll have to get to that when we study Revelation, not Romans. The evidence plays out that man is in decline, not ascent. It plays out on the news day after day as we watch it. 
We have a universal problem of sin which causes God's wrath to be perpetually revealed against our race. Next time, we're going to study the individual problem of sin. You say, well, I hope it's a lot better. It gets worse. It gets better in chapter 3, I promise. But next week, we'll see you got a real problem. It's not just in chapter 1 that we all got a real problem. It's you and I have a real problem. And that real problem is, are we right with a holy God? Let's pray and we'll be done for this evening. Father, I